continue worshiping together this morning, please rise as you are able to receive these words taken from the Gospel according to John, the 12th chapter, beginning in the first verse. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Now let us all pray together. Holy and living God, draw near to us again and open us to receive what you have for us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, for you and you alone, O God, are my strength and our salvation. Amen. We are in a season of Lent in which this year we're focused on the roots of resistance, one of the foundations, sacred resistance, of our shared life. And sacred resistance really begins, its deepest root is relationship. Relationship with God is what gives shape to sacred resistance, and our resistance is lived out most fully with and for one another. Together with God and other people, we participate in the ongoing work of Christ in the world, resisting evil, injustice, and oppression, and seeking to do good. And today I realized between services that I had missed a typo in the bulletin. The sermon uh, uh, title for today was a question, and the question is, Can good be common? Can good be common? And of course, there would be that typo on this day because I was actually going to mention the sermon title. (laughs) And here's the the reason. I'm going to do a thing that I never do, and I'm going to answer my question right up front. Okay? So the answer to the question, can good be common, is a resounding yes. A follow-up question. Is identifying and achieving a common good easy? Well, that's a pretty solid no. Because, of course, there is so much beautiful diversity in human community. And our cultures and experiences and contexts and personalities mean that what would be perceived and experienced as good for one may be for others not at all good. 
and discerning together any kind of a common good among such diversity requires skilled communication, that is, honesty and listening. And some of what my grandma Ruth used to say, you got to give a little and you got to take a little, meaning that dirty word, compromise. And all sorts of other actions, communication, compromise, all sorts of other actions that humans often struggle to do well, if at all. I'm not going to be able to address the fullness of common good today, but we'll reflect on a few things. And there are, thank God, teachings and stories in Scripture that provide guidance for sharing life together that is good for everyone. One basic requirement to achieving a common good is that those involved care about their neighbors and believe that life is about more than just satisfying their own needs and desires. From a Judeo-Christian faith perspective, we are given eyes to perceive that there really is not us and them. It's always we. The life together that we're called to is not an exclusive separatist club. As the church, we are with one another in all of our diversity, and as Christians, we are one and with all of those in our local community and in the world. Christians and siblings of other faith and siblings of no faith at all are in this thing together. God's creative, mending, saving love is present in and extended to the whole world. And within that larger frame, we who seek to follow Jesus will, like Jesus, give particular attention and care to those in the family, the human family, who are struggling or experiencing pain or injustice. Now, one could argue, at least in the beginning of our gospel story today, that that is what J Judas was doing when he called Mary's actions out as unfaithful excess. Judas' attack was a clever diversion from the reality that it was he who was the hypocrite stealing funds that would have otherwise been able to be used for a common good. Judas, I believe, knew that others would easily jump on his bandwagon since economic justice issues aside, according to the cultural rules of that time, Mary was all the way out of bounds. Mary, this is the Mary of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Mary was the host of this gathering, and it was customary for the servant of the home to wash a guest's feet, but Mary takes Jesus' feet into her own hands. 
For a woman to touch any man other than her husband and in public was simply not done. A woman's hair was considered a sensual and private part of her appearance to be seen only by her family. Mary not only shows her hair, but uses it for the anointing. And if all this weren't enough, Mary pours out an extravagant gift, nard, which is an intensely aromatic, amber-colored essential oil derived from spike nard root. Likely, this would have cost a year's wages for a peasant laborer. Others may have jumped on the bandwagon enjoying Judas' faux outrage, but Jesus clearly had Mary's back, publicly recognizing her generous act as a prophetic and brave acknowledgement of his impending death, his burial. What Jesus says next about the poor and himself may strike you as confusing or self-centered, or both. But it helps us to realize that Jesus here is referring to a teaching from Deuteronomy 15, in which Moses lays out the system called Jubilee. When every seven years, the nation of Israel practices a remission of debts. The goal, it says in that chapter, is, quote, no one in need among you, which will be possible only by, quote, diligently observing this entire commandment. The commandment doesn't envision the people being tight-fisted every day until the seventh year when they are forced to be generous. Rather, the text says, quote, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. The economic ethic laid out here in Deuteronomy 15 includes both a social system that provides a safety net for folks who fall behind over time and personal generosity as a daily discipline because there will always be opportunities, both large and small, to care for those in need. Jesus conjures this larger context and commitment of true economic justice that is achieved when people are consistently open-handed and generous in the particular places of need they encounter every day. And Jesus is also acknowledging that Mary has perceptively recognized Jesus' particular suffering and need. She knows, maybe no one else does, but she, except for Jesus, she knows that she and the other disciples 
won't always have Jesus. And so she generously cares for the urgent need that is before her. Mary's act of love, care, and generosity toward Jesus doesn't mean that others in need don't matter or don't deserve generosity and care. But when, like Jesus in this story, there is a body or a people that is threatened, whose enemies are well known, whose lives are in constant danger of violence, both systemic and personal, then that life, that people, call for our particular attention and care in that moment. A recent example of how this can play out in our current context, just an example. There was a cartoon that circulated when the All Lives Matter response was at a fever pitch in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. In this cartoon, the opening two frames are of a person saying, well, I believe all lives matter. We should care exactly equally at all times about everything. In the third frame, you see that the person speaking is holding a fire hose and spraying a house that is not on fire. Next to the house on fire, not on fire, is a house that is burning. The person says, all houses matter. Then another person shows up and says, I agree, all houses do matter, but at the moment, the one on fire should probably get more attention. The back and forth continues. But by saying that a burning house needs attention, aren't you saying all other houses don't matter? No. My house isn't on fire, but I have dry rot. Are you saying that that shouldn't be fixed? Of course it should, but the fire is very pressing. Well, let's say I put that house fire out, but my house catches on fire. Aren't I entitled to water then? Of course, but your house is not the house on fire right now. Where's the house's owner anyway? Why do I got to hose down his house for him? He died in the fire. You may have heard the statement, equal rights for others doesn't mean less rights for you. It's not pie. I don't know exactly why it's so easy to slide into this zero-sum thinking as if a focused care and commitment to one group who is in particular distress will diminish the dignity, worth, or care assigned to those outside that group. Though I do imagine it has something to do with fear, fear of not having enough 
or of losing something that you believe you do have or should have. Such a perspective betrays that belief of limited supply, limited supply of dignity, worth, or care, limited supply of love. But that's not true. God's love and grace, as we know, are eternal and unlimited. And here's the other thing. There are also, some of you all will will fix me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to just say, There are enough resources in the world to provide for all, to have enough. If we only practiced even the ethic of Deuteronomy 15 and actually were committed together to a common good that is grounded in the love of neighbor. Hoarding resources and legislatively denying some people access to financial stability or education or anything are pernicious ways that human fear and selfishness and sins of all kinds get played out. It doesn't have to be that way. In our current climate, with so many groups crying out for long-denied justice, and in a time of dangerously solidified polarization, it becomes difficult to keep a common good in view. Even those working for justice can lose sight of the larger picture when the perception is that one group's need for justice is more important than another group's need for justice, we've begun to tear rather than to mend. When distinct advocacy groups fighting for support and resources begin to lose sight of the larger vision of a common good, the cause of justice can be undermined. When The enemy becomes a stereotype, a faceless other whom it's easy to apply labels upon like monster or Satan. Then it is time for us to pause and recalibrate. What affects one affects all. A common good can get lost in manipulated, charged political polarization, and in the struggle between competing needs, competing goods, competing sufferings. But on this eve of the anniversary of the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I want us to recall the words that he repeated in speech after speech and sermon after sermon, and that have been oft repeated since his death. What he said is this, we must all learn to live together as siblings or we will all perish together as fools. We are tied together. If you know the words, feel free to say them with me. We are tied together in the single garment of destiny caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And whatever affects one affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, he said, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. 
This profound, biblically grounded statement is critically important for our work of sacred resistance. At one and the same time, it affirms the wholeness of the human family, and it acknowledges that the experience of one affects the lives of all. We know in his first letter to the Corinthian churches that Paul described life together saying, just as the body is one and has many members, so it is with Christ. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. As followers of Jesus, we turn toward the places of pain and suffering because that is what Jesus did. (laughs) It's what Jesus affirms today in Mary. And because it's the way of lovingly mending the broken creation of which we are a part, It's the truly human thing to do. Even as we focus our attention on the causes of pain and injustice, take responsibility for our own part in any of those causes, and seek to care for and be in solidarity with those among us who suffer, our faith always reminds us that God's saving love is for the whole world, and that God has structured the world to work together for the good of all. So as one poet writes, when mercy and tenderness triumph in our lives, and when even more rarely we unite and move together toward a common good, we can think to ourselves, Ah, yes, this is how it ought to be. May it be so. Amen. Amen.